This is an ABC podcast. Christopher Clark had spent three decades in the Brazilian Amazon. It's where he found his mission in life, the place where he'd made lifelong friends and to a large extent raised his kids. But in his years there, Chris had also made a lot of enemies. Local politicians, wildlife poachers, jealous locals. Men who threatened to burn down his house, hurt his family or straight out take Chris's life. When writer Anthony Hamm journeyed into the Amazon to meet Chris in 2018, there was a man living just across the water who was threatening to kill him. And there was a real danger that Anthony would get caught up in the crossfire. Anthony's book about Christopher Clark and his dramatic life in the Amazon, the world's greatest rainforest and Brazil's Wild West, is called The Man Who Loved Pink Dolphins. Hi, Anthony. Hi, Sarah. Who was angry with Chris when you visited back in 2018? There was a turtle hunter who lived across the water, across the lagoon. Where Chris lived was a very small hut on the edge of a really remote stretch of riverbank surrounded entirely by forest. And just across the water is a very small village. It, it fluctuated with uh, as to how many people lived there, but it could be anywhere between 20 and 100. And one of the people who lived there was actually someone who Chris had helped a lot over the years. He's someone who was a, uh, actually the brother of one of his best friends, had become an illegal turtle hunter. And... Because Chris was so involved in trying to protect the region and protect the uh, uh, the wildlife of the region, his, he was uh, this turtle hunter thought that Chris was trying to trying to stop his livelihood. And so, what threat had this this local made when he turned up at at Chris's house? Well, Chris had been fortunately downriver at the time; he was not actually there. But his housekeeper, or one of the women who lived there, was at the house, and and this turtle hunter crossed the lagoon and. Uh, threatened to burn down the, the hut, threatened to kill Chris, gave what's quite a chilling warning, which was the hour and the, and the place of Chris's death has been determined. Now, that's quite an old formula in the Amazon for uh, a warning, and usually these are carried out. It happened with Chico Mendes, who was one of the, the great uh, activists in the 1980s. So th- he said that and disappeared back across the back across the lagoon. That was four days before I arrived up there. I guess that just creates a, a sense of fear and foreboding. If you're told the hour and, and the place of your death has been decided upon, you're not going to sleep very easily. And I think that's the whole point of doing it in that way is that you know, even if they weren't able to kill you, they're going to make your life pretty miserable. And at the time when I was there, Chris was sleeping with a, with a rifle under his pillow. He was... Uh, uh, and it wasn't only that. I mean, when when news reached him downriver, he went to the police station to report this. And as he left the police station with his adult daughter, another man came up to him and said, if you keep meddling in our affairs, we'll kill you. And it was completely unrelated. And so within the space of 24 hours, there were two death threats. And Chris <laughs> was quite phlegmatic about it all. He, he, he'd had threats before, but I wasn't quite as well prepared for all of that. <laughs> I've spent a little bit of time in the Amazon, Anthony, and, and it struck me as a place of, you know, extraordinary natural beauty, but also somewhere where life, human life feels cheap. Did you get that impression too? Absolutely. When Chris was talking to me about about the threats when I, when I met him, he said that, you know, if he wanted to get me killed, he could do so for you know, a few hundred reals, which is, it, it's a really small amount, probably, you know, less than $100, he could get me killed. Now, obviously, he wasn't going to, but you also have to understand that up there, there's there's no 
law enforcement. The nearest law enforcement is two days downriver. People can and often do do what they want. Uh, I don't know if you know the recent case of the journalist in Brazil, not I mean, quite a long way from where I was, but certainly a similar situation where he was very experienced, more experienced than me, and he was he was killed um, researching a book. But most often it's not journalists, most often it's the local people, a vendetta of some kind. So he had this death threat uh, out against him, which seemed very credible. What did you hear the night before you were due to leave with Chris and head downriver? We actually went across the, the, the day before we were due to go back downriver. We went across to the village because the police had asked Chris to serve the summons on the person who was threatening him which is how justice works out there. It's a very personal thing. They wanted uh, Chris himself to go to the person who was threatening to kill him and serve the summons. Indeed. And so we crossed the the, the, the lagoon to do that. And, I, I mean, it all was starting to feel very bizarre for me um, that you would have to do that. Fortunately, the turtle hunter wasn't there, so they gave it to the village headman. But when we went back to the to the hut at night, he... He came to me and he said, look, we've, had a, we've heard a rumour that we don't know where the turtle hunter is. We've heard a rumour that he is waiting by the riverbank down, down river. He knows we're heading down tomorrow and then he's going to try and take a pot shot at us tomorrow. So it might be a good idea if you lie down in the boat on the way down. And we're talking a, a, a small tinny, if you like, a small speedboat. And so, well, what went through your head as you're hearing this, and I guess as you'll go to bed and wake up the next morning? I've been through. I've, I've had threats against me before, dangerous situations, but most of them were calculated risks. This was something that I'd turned up in there quite blindly, not knowing that there was this threat against him. There was no other way in. There was no other way out. And it's probably the first time in my life that I've actually woken up and, and wondered if I was going to survive the day. Uh, now, obviously, I wasn't the target. But this is some, and it made me wonder how Chris had survived these sort of threats because when I told his wife later uh, about this moment, she said, oh, yes, that happened often. And so this, you know, he was, for much of his life there, he was there for, for nearly 30 years, for much of his life there, his kids were facing what I faced on that day. It was just a small, you know, small window on, on his life in a sense. Did you do as he suggested, Anthony, and lie I down? I did, and then I felt a little bit silly, and I felt, you now here he is standing up in the back, and Valdemar, one of his, his closest colleagues, was standing up in the front, and uh, I really felt like a bit of a coward, so I sat up, and in the end, we, we made it downriver. But the whole way, we were, you know, obviously listening for the rifle crack, and so we just kept to the middle of the river. And, and no, you didn't hear any shots? No. When did you first lay eyes on Chris Clark? It was 2018. I was travelling in, in Brazil for another assignment and I'd been hearing stories of this, uh, this Scotsman who lived upriver. He almost seemed a bit like a, a, a Kurtz-like figure in the heart of darkness. He, he was upriver. Rumours sort of travelled downriver about him. People knew what he was doing but didn't really know who he was. And so someone had told me about him. I'd got in contact and asked if, we could, we'd, if I could travel up and see him. And he... He agreed, and uh, so I met him in 2018 by the riverbank in Novairon, and he took me up river. What did he look like? He was a really unassuming guy. He had very thick Coke bottle glasses, sort of long, lank hair. Uh, he didn't look at all like someone who was uh, the, the typical image of someone who's there, this impressive person in the forest. He was just who he was, and he was he was uh, nearly 60 years old, and so he was he was quite small, quite thin. Not at all imposing. He did have a certain presence, but that was more about his personality than... And it was more about, I think, the fact that he was a very driven man. He wasn't someone who... Uh, he didn't like small talk. And so when we met, it was sort of quite awkward because he hadn't decided whether he'd tell me 
his story or not. Uh, he didn't know who I was. He 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 was quite guarded in in that sense. And so, but he had this uh, gravitas, if you like, of someone who was completely where he was supposed to be in life. So I guess you were wanting to make a good impression <laughs> on him, Anthony. <laughs> yes, I did. Obviously, I wanted to be able to tell his story. But he wasn't someone who f- suffered fools gladly. He, when I first got into the boat, I put my luggage in and it almost tipped over and he was, you know, he was, you could sort of see he wasn't that impressed and, you know, I thought it was almost over before we started. But uh, over time we, we managed to, uh, to get on quite well. So your journey began that next morning in a, in a little aluminium boat in the, the Rio Negro. How did the landscape change as you travelled on? What could you see? At the beginning... You sort of see the outlying huts, uh, and and there's this sort of the last posts of civilization, and then all of a sudden you realise you haven't seen another boat, you haven't seen another, uh, uh, haven't seen a building, and there is this. It's quite perspective altering. You look at the what you imagine to be the riverbank, and because often it's so still, if no boats have passed by, you can see the sky and the clouds and the trees perfectly reflected in the water. It's almost impossible to see where one begins and the other ends. You really are travelling through a world that is almost entirely uninhabited and also quite um, impenetrable. It's quite difficult. You see this wall of trees and you can hear sounds, you can hear monkeys, you can hear birds, but you can't see them. And you know that there is a whole world out there. It's one of the most biodiverse places on the planet. And yet you can see very little of that when you're actually travelling. You're a travel writer. You've been to wild places all around the world. How remote did did this feel compared to other places you've been? It was certainly one of the most remote places I've been to. I mean, if you look at it on a map, it, that's partly true. There are no roads. There is no, there's no touchstones of our world, if you like. But it's also, it's also that feeling. It's almost as if you, you know, it's like Alice going through the looking glass. You step into it and then the world closes behind you and you're, you're enclosed within that world in a way that you aren't in a desert or in a something which is a savannah grassland which is much more open. For something so vast, it, it's strangely claustrophobic. When you got to the point in the river that you needed to, to head off to get to the place that Chris lived, how, how could you tell? I mean, I'm assuming there's not a signpost. Well, I couldn't, but um, <laughs> they, uh, Chris, Chris knew it intimately. Chris knew the area intimately. And you travel up river, it was up, uh, because Chris lived up a river called the Jalpari River, which is beyond the Rio Negro. And you see small channels leading off, uh, and I could have taken any one of them and never been seen again. It's one of the few places on earth where that sense of discovery is still very much alive. And, it, and it, you don't have to go far to feel that. It really does unfold very quickly. What did you see once you arrived at his home? What did it look like? It, it, it's a strange feeling because you, you come through this uh, twisting little tributary and you come out into a lagoon and there's this tiny wooden hut on the edge of a lagoon. The house had windows but no glass and so there were holes. Uh, it was a very simple existence and that was the way he liked it. And what, what was the lagoon like? Could you see life in the lagoon? The lagoon was... <sighs> Again, it's a cliche, but it was almost paradise, like paradise. There, I would sit on the deck with Chris and uh, drinking caipirinhas and the pink dolphins would be breaching the water just in front of us. There would be macaws or toucans. You'd see the, the monkeys um, high in the trees. And it was a reminder of why Chris had spent so long there. It was a reminder of why I travel. Those sort of places are, you think they don't exist. And, and I think we often think of the Amazon as having in great peril and so on, and it is, but... 
it's so big that there are still so many of those places left. It sounds like Eden, the way you describe it there, Anthony. It was. And when I said that to Chris, he said, well, you think this is good. There's another place further upriver <laughs> where you have manatees, uh, which are like dugongs um, in the lagoon. You have uh, you know, macaws nesting in their tens of thousands. And for him, it was just a question of degree. But for me, it all seemed incredible. And what are pink dolphins like? How pink is a pink dolphin? Um, they're not vivid Barbie pink, they're... Um, very subtle. They're, yes, they're very subtle. <laughs> they're, they're, they're quite uh, a pale pink, but they, I mean, they are noticeably pink. It is, it's not, uh, there's no doubt about the colour. They're, they're like dolphins anywhere. They live in pods. They're quite playful. Unlike most of the other creatures in the Amazon, you don't get any sense that they're out to get you. <laughs> they're, because uh, most things in the Amazon are sort of in a, as Chris once described it, they're, they're, you know, everything's trying to eat everything else and that's survival of the fittest. Whereas the dolphins are just this playful presence that are just always there. And in some places in the Amazon, you can actually feed them and they're, you know, they're quite, you know, quite tame in a sense. So Valdemar, Chris's father-in-law and, and also your guide, what was it like going into the jungle with him? Valdemar is a, is a remarkable man, one of those wise old Indigenous men who grew up in the forest. He has what uh, Brazilians call jeito, which is, is a, a word that means way, but it, we don't really have an equivalent. It's a, a forest savvy. He, he understood the forest. He'd grown up in the forest. He had hunted in the forest. He'd been a rubber tapper. He had uh, felled timber. He'd grown marijuana, which is what he was doing when, when uh, Chris had met him. To actually travel with him was, I mean, Chris had a presence, but Valdemar just had this silent, uh, he, I never saw him ruffled, even in the most uh, extraordinary circumstances, even with the threats, he was calm. It, it was very reassuring for me as someone who'd never been in the forest before. I would walk through the forest and knowing that if I was there on my own, I'd be in great trouble, whereas you know, with him, I felt completely safe. He didn't protect you from a spider <laughs> that you had a close encounter with, though, early on. What happened? Well, you paddle through the, the forest, which is flooded, and so those, those waters will recede and this will become dry land. But while I was there, you're actually paddling through the forest and so the trees are all around and you've got to push branches out of the way. And, and this was wonderful and he helped me find uh, giant otters and you know, calling to the otters and all of a sudden they'd, they'd appear. Well, and... how do you call to an otter? <laughs> I'm not going to replicate <laughs> it, but it's quite a... You, you imitate a, a feral pig in distress is basically the way that you do And that brings the otters and to... And he had a way of doing it. And also uh, slapping the water with the canoe, uh, with the, the oar of the canoe, because then it sounds like there's an animal in distress and then they will come and try and obviously hunt the animal in distress. Well, how big is a river otter? Uh, they're pretty big. I don't know the exact size. But like but a bigger than a wombat? Like oh, a... yeah, yeah, and quite, and quite a bit longer. And, quite, and they, they're quite intimidating. They, they, they travel in bands of about 10 or 20 and they, they come to where they, they think something's happening and they're bobbing their heads up and down and sort of crying out and sort of looking you in the eye. And sort of, it's quite a – I mean, they're not going to attack me, but they are quite a scary presence when you're actually there. Um, so we were doing all of this and that was wonderful. And then uh, on one occasion we went between two really close branches and I managed to go through a spider's web. He obviously ducked out of the way and forgot to warn me. And uh, I had a spider on my face that was literally the size of my face. And so oh. for, 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 oh, a, for a moment hey. that was probably, uh, it felt like a, a, about an hour, but it was probably about all the five, ten seconds, oh. I was seeing the world through the legs of this enormous spider and I... 
flapped around as if probably made enough noise to attract the river otter. <laughs> and um, you were an animal in distress. I was an animal in distress point. very much so. <laughs> I uh, I don't uh, I, I don't mind spiders, but I don't particularly like them on my face. <laughs> and uh, Valdemar was sort of just you know, tranquilo, just calm down. I, I, Thought that was very easy for him to say at the time, but um, but it wouldn't have bothered him if if it had happened to him. He would have just flicked it off. He was very much of the forest. <laughs> are there jaguars in in this part of the Amazon? There are, and Chris had a number of encounters with them, uh, including one of the on one occasion when he went up to that area where I said there were the manatees and the macaws. He and Valdemar decided to go for a walk in the forest on one occasion, and they saw a jaguar in the forest. It was perhaps 50 metres away, and Chris believed that no one had a, that jaguar had never seen a human being before simply because of where it was. And the jaguar looked at both of them and then just very purposefully started walking towards them. Now, you don't enter the forest unarmed. You enter with a machete. Partly that's to cut a path through the, through the forest and partly that's for self-defence. Uh, and so... The jaguar got to within maybe you know, 20, then 10, and then five metres, and Valdemar knew very well that, that it was going to attack. And so they've stood there back to back. Okay, why don't you run if a jaguar <laughs> is coming towards because you slowly? it's one of the oldest rules, and I certainly learned this in Africa, food runs. And so if you run, then the jaguar is at an advantage and it imagines that you're something. Chris believed right to the end that, uh, the only reason the jaguar didn't attack was because he had no idea what it, what they were, uh, because the, the, here are these two men screaming, holding out machetes uh, in the middle of the forest while the jaguar runs to attack them, and they're not running away. And Chris remembered that he stood there with his machete, and the tip of the machete was almost touching the jaguar's nose. You know, both he and Valdemar are shouting to each other, "If it goes for me, then help me out!" and I, I had this you know, romantic notion of Valdemar sort of reciting some great incan- incantation, but no, it was just screaming. And, <laughs> Help! Yes, basically. And uh, they stood there and, and I think having lost momentum, the Jaguar suddenly thought, well, hang on, this may not be what I think it is. And it slowly, slowly turned around and went off. But it's, you know... It's one of the things that these sort of things only seem to make Chris like the the jungle more. (laughs) He was a special kind of guy in that sense. The word Amazon itself, Anthony, is is kind of mythic. It conjures up so many images and and a sense of that teeming life. It's almost impossible to comprehend. Uh, It's, I mean, half of the world's rainforest is in the Amazon. You know, one-fifth of the world's bird species, one-third of the world's fish species, they're all there. It's just this incredible proliferation that is almost impossible to to get get your head around at times. Europeans had been heading into the Amazon since the 17th century, which in many ways had had a devastating impact on the Indigenous peoples. But it was the discovery of what rubber that comes from wild-growing rubber trees, what that rubber could be used for that really turbocharged changes in the Amazon. Was the discovery of rubber something like a gold rush? It certainly did. Manaus, which is the town in the centre of the Brazilian Amazon, in in 1884 had a few thousand people. By 1900 had 50,000. It became a boom where People in New York were reportedly flipping coins. Do we go to the Klondike to look for gold or do we go to uh, to Manaus to look for what they call black gold? Uh, there were 5,000 people a week arriving in Manaus at the time. And 
it sent that part of the country into into a frenzy. It, it's the sort of place that is a real backwater and has always been looked down on by the rest of Brazil and all of a sudden they were one of the richest places in, in Brazil. And what was that money being spent on? What kind of city did, did Manaus turn into? Manaus, some of it was quite impressive. They were one of the first uh, cities in the world to have electric uh, trams and so on, even before New York. But a lot of it was quite uh, over the top. The really wealthy rubber barons were... Uh, lighting their cigarettes with $100 bills. They were watering their horses on champagne. They were sell- sending their, their laundry to Paris or to Lisbon for the, you know, every week. It was, it was, it was a, a symbol of excess, as I imagine happened in most places, uh, that, that become suddenly wealthy. Werner Herzog made a great film, Fitzcarraldo, about the building of an opera house in Iquitos in the Peruvian Amazon. What's the story of the opera house in Manaus? There were lots of uh, excesses, but I think the, the opera house, which they called the Teatro Amazonas, was perhaps the most ornate. Uh, it, it was this uh, a vision of the governor who wanted to transform the city into one of the great cultural capitals of the, of the world, in a sense. And it was built with marble from Carrara in Italy, 66,000 ceramic tiles from Alsace-Lorraine, uh, Venetian glass. It, it, was a, it was a confection that... Um, seemed completely out of place on the banks of on the banks of the Amazon, and it's still there. It's 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 quite a beautiful building. In 1897, it hosted its first opera, Poncielli's uh, La Gioconda. It turned out to be the only opera ever staged at the, at the theatre because logistically, it was only a 700 seat theatre, which required enormous numbers of performances in order to become profitable. They had to ship all of the the performers and the sets from Europe. Half of the crew and half of the performers died of yellow fever, and so practically it, it was a complete. It was a confection. It had no useful purpose whatsoever. But I, I think that wasn't the point. The point was it was a statement of you know what Manau, how Manau saw itself. But I guess it's kind of symbolic of this um, this blaze of glory that then fell to earth very quickly in terms of the rubber boom, which is what had provided all the money for, for this excess. What happened to bring that crashing down uh, in terms of a source of wealth for Brazil? Sometime before the rubber boom had started, there was a, a, a traveller who had taken taken some of the seeds of the rubber tree and he'd smuggled them out of Brazil. He'd taken quite a lot of them, uh, thousands of them, and he took them to the UK and took them to Kew Gardens, the, the famous botanical gardens there. And almost none of the seeds that he took there survived, but enough survived that they were able to plant some in places like uh, Malaysia and Sri Lanka and other places. Now, that took a long time to come to fruition. And so while the rubber boom was just kicking off in Brazil, the seeds, if you like, for their demise were actually growing in, in, in Asia. And it was much easier to grow in Malaysia because you could grow a plantation. You didn't have to go and harvest each tree that might be spread out over kilometres. And so by 1897, when they actually had that famous performance in the Opera House, it was already in decline. And by 1900 and the early, early 20th century, uh, rubber was suddenly being sourced from other places and Manaus fell back into obscurity almost overnight. People left it, no one was arriving. You had stories of uh, what would be billionaires today selling lottery tickets on, on the streets of Manaus just to survive because there was no customers anymore. What's it like as a city to visit now? It's it's a funny place. You, you fly into it as, as I did and, and flying over the Amazon's an incredible thing because you see this carpet of uh, trees to the horizon. You see 
almost different weather systems. It's so vast. You can see storm over there. You can see perfect blue sky over there. And it's, it seems to go on forever. And it's quite reassuring considering all the stories we have of the Amazon. And then all of a sudden you, you, you fly in over the river and you see this city that's almost, it's a bit like, a bit like a Miami, a bit like a, a poor man's Rio de Janeiro. It's, it's this, lots of high rise eating away at the forest and it, it has colonized a large stretch of the riverbank. I, I like port cities because I like their intrigue. I like their, uh, you never quite know what's going on. There's always something happening, but it, there, there was a, a, a bit of a, uh, a strange feeling about it. There'd been gang wars and so on. And so there were lots of, uh, paramilitaries there more paramilitaries than almost any, anyone else on the streets. And so I felt quite uncomfortable there while I was there, which is unusual for me. How much of the Amazon, Anthony, is still in the hands of, of Indians, of First Nations people? It's one of those things that the Amazon is so vast and there are such terrible things happening to it that it, it can be quite dispiriting. But almost one quarter is held by Indigenous people. And uh, I heard it said a number of times, both by Valdemar and by, and by Chris, that if you want to save the forest, if you want to save the Amazon, then you put it in the hands of, of the Indian, the, of the Indigenous people. And I saw that quite remarkably when I drove out of Manaus. Uh, at, when I was there, I drove up to a point where uh, an Indigenous people uh, named the uh, Waimiri Atrawari, they, they worked very closely with Chris later, but I drove out to the edge of where their territory starts and you drive out of Manaus and it's almost a wasteland. You, you have cattle feeding on spindly uh, grasses, the, the trees have been felled, there's evidence of burning. And then you come to this wall of forest that is a straight line, which is obviously the boundary line of the, of the Indigenous Territory. And it's almost Tolkien-esque. It's, it's this, like this fortress, this forest fortress. And you get to a point in the road where it starts to cross this Indigenous Territory. And there is a checkpoint. And there you see people, uh, Indigenous people, in, in sometimes in full war paint and guarding this checkpoint and at six o'clock every night they close the road to all except uh, I think buses and emergency vehicles and no one is allowed through and they still control that land and you can see the difference it is it, it's almost like an island in this sea of deforestation it is the indigenous people that are that are protecting it This is Conversations with Sarah Konoski. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Anthony, the Amazon became Chris's home, but where had he grown up? Chris was born in Glasgow in, in 1960. He'd grown up, his father was a, uh, worked in publishing, his mother uh, looked after the family, he had quite a large family, a number of brothers and sisters. They moved between an area just, uh, just west of, of London up, into, up to Glasgow and they moved back and forth quite a lot. When he was still a young, young boy, not quite a teenager, they moved up to Glasgow and that was quite a shock for Chris because it, it was the... It was the 1960s, Glasgow, public school. It was quite a rough experience. Good I think, preparation for the Amazon, Anthony. <laughs> yes, I think he certainly <laughs> learned how to look after himself. Uh, and, and it was quite a strict family as well. I mean, his, his father, everyone seemed to think that his father was one of the nicest men 
that they'd ever met. Whereas his mother was quite a strict disciplinarian. She was very religious. And Chris felt, he, he said later to, to one of his daughters, uh, when he pointed out his childhood home, he said, this was my prison. And mm. I think he, that he often said that one of the reasons why he was driven to move to the ends of the earth was that he, he wanted to, partly to escape that prison, but also to, to, to set up something that was a different kind of family than the one that he'd grown up in. It sounds like quite an urban upbringing, you know, with London and, and Glasgow. Where did his love of wild places first show itself? When he was still quite young, he'd head out into the Scottish Highlands to hike uh, and to uh, camp out in the middle of nowhere on his own. He was someone who I came to know as an extraordinarily competent man. And so he, he, he learned, perhaps that's where he learned it, he learned how to look after himself quite young. He learned how to be out in, in nature quite young. Certainly his upbringing was quite urban, but I think he'd always longed for the, for the far horizon in a sense. And how did he end up in Milan in Italy as still a teenager? Again, he said it was partly to escape the family life, but he raced through his schooling and he was, he was finished, finished high school at the age of 16. And he was able to get a job in a publishing company in Milan through his father's contacts. And he was a very gifted linguist, so he learned Italian very quickly and worked for a publishing company there. They asked him, he was supposedly there for only six months, but they asked him to stay on. And then he met someone who gave him a job as a, uh, as a bookseller at the, the various book fairs around Europe, and he'd be fated in five-star hotels. And he was still only at that stage, 18, 20 years old. And he, he was someone who, who really knew how to make things work, whether it was in an urban setting or, or in a forest later. So how did he first experience the Amazon? He didn't like the whole idea of five-star hotels, and, and that's something that a lot of us would find quite difficult to understand, but he didn't like the idea of going from one city to the next and a hotel looking exactly the same as the one that he just left. And so he had this yearning to travel. He, he had an a Italian girlfriend, and one, on uh, one of his uh, trips to a book fair, he was asked by a publisher to translate uh, an encyclopedia into Italian. And what happened was that he was able to do that by submitting every three months. He carried a portable typewriter and so he could he could get this done in a month and he had the other two months to travel. He'd earned enough money from his previous jobs to be able to afford it. So they travelled around the world, he and his girlfriend, and they stopped off in, in Indonesia, they stopped off in Thailand. And I, I think they were probably looking for somewhere to, to put down roots or to, to find their place. And his wife later told me that as soon as they touched down in Brazil in the Amazon, she knew that that was the place. She wasn't quite so sure at the time, but he was very much at home as soon as he arrived. So they wanted, or certainly Chris decided that he wanted to be able to keep returning to Brazil and to the Amazon in particular. How did he set up his life so that he was able to fund that in the early years? As I said, he was someone who really was extraordinarily competent. And he, uh, partly through his connections, partly through his linguistic skills, he was able to tap into the uh, one of the defining lifestyle booms of the of the 1980s uh, it was a time when tuscany was suddenly all the rage and so there were very wealthy british families coming to look for abandoned farmhouses and he had already begun to renovate a farmhouse for his parents and so he extended that into a business and he would at the start of each month decide how much money he wanted to earn how much he'd like to uh, how much he actually wanted to work and how much he wanted to travel and he would negotiate the almost Byzantine bureaucracy of, of Bettina Craxi's Italy at the time and uh, help these people get through that. Uh, and 
he earned a lot of money doing so. When you say it like that, Anthony, that seems a pretty nice life. You're living in Tuscany in the 1980s, making very good money, restoring farmhouses. Why wasn't that enough for him, do you think? I don't know. Chris... Chris never really operated like the rest of us. He was someone who wanted, he wanted more. I, I, I don't know that at that point it had manifested in his mind as someone who wanted to make a difference. I think, I think it, he did, but he found it all very shallow. He found ostentatious displays of wealth to be quite shallow. So for him, it was a means to an end. And he said to me once, I've never had trouble making money. And so I, th- I think maybe because it came too easily for him, that was one thing that he wanted a bigger challenge. That was something he could do as a hobby almost. And for some people, comfort isn't really the end game, is no. it? No, and the five-star hotels, just he, he wasn't interested in those. I, when I met him years later, in his car, it, his car, you could see the road through the floor. I had to climb in through the window. It was so <laughs> decrepit. His daughter told me later the car just died once in the middle of the road and it was abandoned and <laughs> he had no interest in that. Where he lived was the most simple house up in Chishwa. It was, it was, it was four walls and, a, and that was it and he was happy. So over his, his trips to the Amazon, he finds this place, this beautiful lagoon upriver called Chishwa. What was his vision for life there? What kind of community did he want to, to create there? He first arrived in the Amazon in 1984 and he kept going back every year and he'd travel with his friends upriver and he'd reach these places. And in 1990, he pulled into a riverbank town called Sao Pedro. Town's probably overselling it. It was a, a handful of huts by the riverbank, only old women and, and young children in the riverbank. All the, all the young men had fled to the slums of Manaus and to, to Rio. And one of the elders came to him and said, can, can you help us? Can you help us save our way of life? Can you help us build something that will mean that the children don't leave leave here. And Chris thought about it, discussed it with his friends, discussed it with the elders, and the idea they came up with was to, to establish a reserve, a what's known as an extractive reserve. It's the kind of place where locals can live, they can hunt for subsistence reasons, not commercially, but at the same time there are protections in place to protect the wildlife, and that's what his vision was for Shishwa, the sort of place that would preserve the livelihoods and preserve the way of life of, of local people, but at the same time protect the forest. I guess this was happening at really the same time that foreigners and foreign celebrities started taking notice of what was happening in the Amazon, you know, Sting most famously. How did that international attention, that spotlight, play out in Brazil itself? In a lot of places, whether it's Africa or South America, there is a real resistance to people coming in and saying, you should save your rainforests when the Western world's long ago destroyed theirs. There is a sense that, uh, and even more recently, Emmanuel Macron, the, the French president's saying this is the world rainforest and this is, this is something that we need to protect for all humanity, whereas Brazil and Brazilians often think very differently. They consider that to be a meddling in their own affairs. They consider the forest to be theirs, to be something that is as an important resource. So people like Chris coming in, and Chris wasn't a diplomat, people like Chris coming in and, and, and doing this was seen very much as a land grab, as someone trying to co-opt the local people to take the land away from people who would want to exploit it. What were some of the more outlandish claims made against Chris and what he was doing there in the jungle by people who saw him in this sort of light? There were claims that there were antennas on the tops of the treetops, that, that the Queen of England had a... Um, alternately, it was the Queen of England or Mikhail Gorbachev were... <laughs> oh, had these so green, similar. Yeah, of course. 
Well, because uh, Chris thinks it was because he'd met Mikhail Gorbachev at a conference once, but he's not sure entirely why how Gorbachev became a part of it. But there was this sense that Chris was at the head of this vanguard of almost a military force that was coming in to take the resources of the Amazon to uh, brainwash the uh, the local inhabitants. And so you had people, you know, you had armed posses, if you like. I mean, it makes it sound like the Wild West, but it very much was. Armed posses coming up into the upper river and saying, where's the laboratory? Where's the, um, what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing here? What's the, you know, there were threats that they would come and threaten to burn down his hut. And, but they were convinced that he was, that his, his aims were not altruistic. Well, you know, populist leaders the world over like to stoke fear of outsiders and outsiders meddling in, in home affairs. So no doubt he was the victim of some of that too. And that happened with a local politician. A local politician turned up one time when he was there uh, trying to establish an anti-malaria program among the local people. And he came up and he said, oh, you look like you've got some money. And uh, Chris was quite polite and said, yes, if you'd like to help us, we'd love you to get on board with this. And this man became an enemy of Chris because what he actually wanted was for Chris to donate some money to his political campaigns. And as a result of that first meeting, Chris was hauled before parliamentary inquiries. He was numerous death threats. There were military expeditions that arrived, you know, commandos arriving on his deck one morning while he's sitting there having breakfast and, you know, storming up the up the, the steps and saying, where's the laboratory? And Chris sort of looked at them and said, do you mean the... The lavatory. He was. I mean, he, he was no fool. He knew what was happening, but he because he he wasn't doing anything that was even remotely like they said. He just played a very straight bat, if you like. You mentioned there, Anthony, an anti-malaria campaign. What other benefits did the presence of this crazy white man uh, have for the locals? Uh, he tried a lot of things. Some of them didn't work. They tried a uh, permaculture experiment, and he it was a complete disaster. So not everything worked, but. Uh, he set up a health post, he set up an anti-malarial program, he set up, um, he put internet into the villages so that, and he was able to help a number of people who had quite serious accidents up there by being online at the time talking to Italian doctors in Milan and he was sewing these people Chris up. was doing the surgery. There was a case where um, a couple of young guys were out with a gun and one of the guns went off and shot half the guy's face off and Chris basically... Didn't sew him back together, but he got him um, stabilised by spending two hours on, on a quite flimsy internet connection to a surgeon that was patched through to Padua that was then patched through to Milan. And um, he was always ambivalent about those sort of changes because, you know, bringing television to to a remote village can have a really terrible effect. And he he was quite open about that. He said. You know, it used to be that people who grew up in the forest would learn at the, at the feet of their, their parents. They'd go out every day and they'd learn the forest life, whereas now they come home from school and watch Brazilian telenovelas until the evening. And so a lot has been lost, and he was aware of that, but I think he also felt that it wasn't fair to not bring the benefits of progress, technological progress in that sense. Very so hard to have one without the other. You want is. to be able to patch through to Padua for that Italian doctor, <laughs> but that also yes. brings the telenovelas. It does. When you met Chris, he was in his late 50s. People who knew him back earlier on in his time in the Amazon, how did they describe him to you? He was an incredibly joyful figure. I've seen a picture of, uh, of him. It was taken by an Italian photographer where he's, he's launching himself out onto the, onto the river with his arms and there's this unmistakable joy and everyone described this infectious joy. His kids talked about what a, an incredible father he was, what a, how joyful he was throughout his life. I didn't see that. By, by the time I met him, he was 
Obviously, he was older, but he'd also gone through a lot more. He, I think he'd had a lot of his idealism, not so much beaten out of him, but he was a lot more realistic, a lot more cynical by then. But I did see it on one occasion when we were travelling uh, on the river and his daughter, who also lived in a, in, in a nearby area, uh, he saw her from a distance on a boat and he almost leapt out of the boat. He was suddenly childlike again. And it was that joy to see his daughter and it made me realise that's probably what he was like back in the, when he was younger. The two daughters that uh, he had with his first wife, his Italian wife, and they spent um, a lot of time, a lot of their childhood in this remote part of the Amazon with their mum and dad. What was life like for them as little girls? What did they remember? Chris had no boundaries when it came to being a parent. He just believed that the kids should be free to do whatever they wanted. And perhaps that was a reaction to his own upbringing. Uh, It was also probably a reaction to where he was. The girls remember this idyllic life. It became a bit different when they were teenagers, but as, as young children... They were, they, they do some schooling through the internet with, connected to an Italian school, but they spent most of the day playing in the river. They'd, uh, it didn't always work out in the way that they'd like. I mean, the, his youngest daughter, uh, Nicole, she remembers one time Chris was so obsessed with animals that one time he, there was a nest of, uh, an, an anaconda, a, a snake, had sort of made a nest just above his daughter's bed and she asked him to move it and he said, no, it's got a right to be there and so... This little girl with her teddy bear goes off to sleep with her in her parents' bed because her father won't move the anaconda. <laughs> there was a, a famous caiman um, alligator named Lucifer or Lucy, and um, Chris would just jump into the river and, as, and, and encourage his kids to follow. And I don't know, uh, they all survived, so yes. maybe he was right. <laughs> the marriage, that first marriage, had been pretty volatile and eventually it came to an end in 2008 and his wife went back to Italy. What did that breakup do to him? What kind of impact did that have? I think part of Chris's story is the story of what he did in the Amazon, but part of it is also a family saga. And to understand Chris, you really had to understand his upbringing. He'd had this very difficult, wasn't a difficult upbringing, but it was a very strict upbringing. And so he had a very idealistic view of what this family life in the Amazon could be. And it was for a number of years. It was this incredible life where you know, they, they did what they wanted. They travelled between Italy and, and Brazil. But Chris was able to do the work he wanted to do. His kids were happy. When the marriage broke down, and it was the marriage was, a, it was, it was one series of fireworks after another. They both loved the Amazon and they loved each other almost as much as they couldn't stand each other. There was this this volatility, as you mentioned. And so when it fell apart, he fell apart and he went into into this spiral of despair and, and alcohol like the rest of us when something terrible happens. He fell in, in a hole. He, he, on one occasion, was so upset and so angry that he took an axe and tried to chop down the house that they'd been spent their entire life building and one of his friends had to punch him in the face to, to stop him because he was so... Uh, and so it was a really incredibly difficult time for him because it was almost as if he'd, he'd, he'd imagined this ideal life in the forest and all of a sudden it came crashing down. You said earlier that you wondered if he was going to be a bit like Kurtz out of, you know, Heart of Darkness. Did he have that kind of air to him, that deranged white saviour complex that, that appears in literature and films? He, if you spoke to him... He was someone who was very clear in his objectives. He knew what he wanted to achieve and he was, he was charming. 
I suspect when he was a younger man, he was much more volatile. He, he had lots of arguments with his brother, who also lived later on the Amazon. The, the, the brother said to him, you've got to bring the authorities along with you. And Chris said, no, they're not going to do it. And so he would just thumb his nose at the authorities. And so in that sense, he was someone who would push the limits, and quite happily so. And I don't think he ever... He was someone who was uh, crazy in the sense that he just was the most single-minded person I ever met. But he, he also was someone who um, didn't care what people thought. And so in a sense he was Kurtz, but in a sense he was a, a benevolent Kurtz. <laughs> All Kurtzes think they're benevolent. They That's do, the problem, they? Anthony. <laughs> his, um, his vision was partly the creation of this reserve in, in the Amazon. How did a Brazilian supermodel play a role in that <laughs> dream finally coming true? By 2018, he'd been doing this for nearly three decades. It, it had ebbed and flowed. There were moments when it looked like it wasn't going to happen. It had, the original plan had been expanded, so it was a much bigger idea. And so, but by 2018, the whole thing had stalled. He, he just assumed it wasn't going to happen. Uh, it was a time when uh, the, uh, the Workers' Party, who had ruled Brazil for a number of years, were probably the best chance of getting a reserve declared were in deep trouble. The president, Temer, had a 9% popularity rating. And uh, the current president, Jair Bolsonaro, was looming on the horizon. And uh, the story goes, and Chris could never verify this, but uh, President Temer, his wife, was actually friends with the Brazilian supermodel, Giselle Bündchen. And she was an, she's an activist for protecting the Amazon. And the story is that she said to his to the president's wife, please ask your husband to do us a favour and protect this. And because he had nothing to lose, he only had 9% popularity, he did it. And so six weeks before I arrived, out of the blue, suddenly Chris got word that the reserve had been declared 30 years after he first began. What did the election of Bolsonaro mean for the Amazon, for rainforest and Indigenous rights? He, Shishwa was probably the last place that was locked away before Bolsonaro came into power. And it was just in time because what Bolsonaro did was in the first year, uh, deforestation rose by 90%. He put the, uh, the uh, evangelical wing of his party in charge and the cattle ranchers in charge of the environment ministry. And so he cut the uh, Environment Protection Agency by 50%. He declared that he was going to open up the Indian reserves to mining and so on. And... It's a theme that runs throughout Brazilian history, right from the 1960s when the Amazon was still very much intact. The military and the conservative forces in Brazil have always had this uh, problem with the Amazon, a, a land where very few people live while you have a growing population in coastal areas that don't have enough land and they see it as their frontier, they see it as part of their national sovereignty. After that dramatic departure from Shishwa'u in, in the boat that you were first of all lying down in and then bravely stood <laughs> up in, you stayed in, in contact with Chris, emailing and calling, and then in April 2020 you weren't getting replies. When he finally got in touch with you, what did he say had happened? I had uh, I had written to Chris uh, to tell him that I, I was ready to tell his story. I really felt that that was what I wanted to do. And so I contacted him and sent him that email and I received no answer in April. And what I didn't know was that on the day that I sent the email, he fell down uh, the stairs at his place out in the remote, uh, out in Shishwell. And he 
had fallen down and was obviously quite unwell. His fa- uh, one of his older si- older daughters was there, and they had been seeing signs in him for a while. They'd been seeing some deterioration, and he'd been denying it. But all of a sudden, he realised he couldn't uh, deny it any longer. They took a boat. The boat broke down. It was a three day journey down river in the rainy season. It was this hellish trip to get him down river. And when he finally answered, he had got down to Novairon and he wrote to tell me that he thought that he, um, they believed he'd had a stroke. It turned out that it wasn't a stroke, that he had quite advanced lung and brain cancer. In this year 2020, it's COVID-19, of course. What kind of impact was that having in the Amazon and in, in, in hospitals? The Amazon was one of the worst affected places in, in the world. Uh, there, was, there was some statistic that almost three quarters of people in Manaus had had COVID in the first year. I mean, we're talking a city of nearly 2 million people. No one knows the impact it had on the Indigenous communities because a lot of these were obviously dying upriver. Um, and so Chris couldn't get treatment in Manaus simply because the hospitals were overrun. And so he decided to go back to the UK with his oldest daughter to get treatment. And he was... I spoke to his, his daughters later and I asked them if, the, if he knew that he you know, was possibly leaving the Amazon for the last time and he really, he was someone who was always optimistic and he never let on but I think he probably knew that, that his time was running out because the diagnosis wasn't, wasn't good. And so what happened to Chris back in the UK? Uh, he had, was taken to a hospital close to London and he seemed to be getting better and then all of a sudden nothing was working and it was obvious that there was nothing more that they could do and they gave him the option of staying in hospital or going home and he went home with his uh, adult daughter um, and the next day they were lying in bed together and he just quietly passed away but he made sure that he'd said his goodbyes, he'd, he'd, he'd rung all the people he wanted to ring. And Does it feel somehow wrong to you that he died back in England rather than in his beloved Amazon? Absolutely and his, his family was really trying to get because um, it was quite hard to get back to Brazil at the time and to, to take his ashes back there. I saw an interview with him just after I left on, on British television and he spoke about the fact that he expected his life to be shorter because of where he lived. He knew he wouldn't be able to get the medical care as he got older. I don't think he expected it to be quite that quick. But he always said, you know, I, I want to be buried behind that old tree out the back. I mean, that's what he expected. And to die in a, in a cold English hospital at the height of COVID really was an injustice in a way. Will his, his daughters be able to bring his ashes back? I believe so. They're, they're still working to do that. It's, uh, it's complicated because there are lots of family members involved and uh, he, yeah, as, he... It was really difficult for them to get back because of, the, because of COVID. One of his adult daughters actually lives very close to Shishwao and, in a sense, they're the ones who want to get back there to try and carry on his legacy because the way he left it... Uh, Shishwa was declared a reserve and then Bolsonaro came in and so there was a lot of work still to be done in terms of setting up the reserve, setting up its protections. Did his family support you then in telling his story? I mean, Chris knew that you wanted to to write this book, Anthony, but after he passed away, what did his family think about you telling it? There were a lot of things that I couldn't write about simply because there were a lot of family things that had happened over the years that obviously they didn't want me to include, but they were very keen for his story to be told. They knew how remarkable their father was or their, or their brother. They knew what he'd done and he's very little known outside the Amazon and so they were very keen for me to tell the story. It was complicated because 
I wanted to get access to his journals and I don't know that I'd want my family members to pass on my journals or anything like that. I think it's something that they were quite torn about because there was a lot of stuff in there that in a sense didn't reflect not necessarily well on him but just family issues that were quite difficult to deal with and that you don't really want airing. And so I had to be quite sensitive to that because there were a lot of things that made me understand him as more human, as a more human hero, but that I didn't want to put in the book because it served no purpose to the overall story. Is it a part of the world that, that you feel any pull towards going back to? Uh, yes and no. I, I dreamed of, Chris and I always talked about going back to that place that he spoke about because I never made it up there where the, the manatees were swimming in. Uh, and I'd like to get back up there. I've got to be a little bit careful about going back. Chris made a lot of enemies and there are people who wouldn't want someone who glorified Chris to be travelling upriver. Uh, so I'd like to go back, yes, but whether I can or not, I think I probably need to wait a little while before I can. Thank you so much for being my guest on Conversations. Thanks so much, Sarah. Broadcast. Podcast. You're listening to Conversations. Anthony Hamm's book about Chris Clark and the Amazon is called The Man Who Loved Pink Dolphins. I'm Sarah Konoski. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Sarah Konoski. For more Conversations interviews, head to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. It's a heist of grand proportions and a story straight out of a Hollywood blockbuster. Millions of dollars of diamonds smuggled out of the remote Kimberley in Western Australia, then around the world. But the diamonds weren't lost to the 80s when this heist happened. The stolen gems are back in circulation. On Pink Diamond Heist. How did no one notice diamonds were being smuggled out of the world's most secure mine? Who were the culprits behind this multi-million dollar heist? And where are the stolen diamonds now? Find out right now on Pink Diamond Heist on the ABC Listen app.